Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Hello all. So, no new episode this week. In case you missed it, I'm on the road this month, traveling to some of the true crime sites covered in previous episodes of this show. I really want to see them in person. Talk to you soon. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, where blood runs cold. I'm Eric Rivenis. An interview today, and a good one. Anytime I can delve into St. Paul gangster history, I am as happy as a clam. And that's what's going to happen in this episode. I am very pleased to have as my guest today, Tim Mahoney. He is a journalist, a former editor of the St. Paul Pioneer Press, and an author of an outstanding book called Secret Partners, Big Tom Brown and the Barker Carpus Gang, published by the Minnesota Historical Society Press. Thanks so much for agreeing to come on and chat. I've been looking forward to this for a while. I'm happy to be here, Eric. I know you've been interested in this subject for a while. When did you decide you wanted to turn your interest into a full-blown book? Well, I'm not, I'm not quite sure. When I moved, I moved to Minnesota in the year 2000. And, uh, someone, uh, uh, the fellow who hired me at the Pioneer Press tried to interest me in gangster history of St. Paul. And he, he said, Oh, this is pretty spectacular. And I just said, Yeah, yeah, sure, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> probably about five or six later, five or six years later, I be, I stumbled into a, an article or two that, went through the newspaper and referred to the history and I began to get interested. But what really flipped my switch was when I read a, an article in the St. Paul Pioneer Press about the anniversary of the ham kidnapping at the very end of this story, um, which was written by Tom Webb, a business reporter for the Pioneer. He mentioned that um, that some people suspected that the police chief had had a hand in the kidnapping. And I thought, what? This I haven't heard. Um, you know, kidnapping, bank robbery, sure, I know about that, but the police chief involved? So that just started me on a, you know, research project that sort of took hold of me. My first episode of my most notorious podcast was with Paul McAbee, author of Dillinger Slipped Here. Great, great book. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but yours is too. And they are very different, right? Well, some of the stories overlap. You've done a bunch of new research and come at the subject from a very different angle, wouldn't you say? Right, right. 
Right. I think I think what had done before me is Paul's terrific book um, was uh, uh, basically geographically focused. I mean, he made a he made a tour of the gangster era in a way. It was all it was a lot about geography and what happened where. And my focus was really about Tom Brown and the corrupt um, administration, the corrupt politics and and of the police and the uh, and the St. Paul city administration that that allowed the uh, the gangster era to flourish. It's not a uh, coincidence that both the last stage of the Dillinger gang and the most dangerous phase of the Barker Carpus gang both were located in St. Paul in the mid early thirties. That's not a coincidence. It's because they were allowed to operate there. And so once I, once I found that as, then I found my focus, um, which really was the intersection of politics, police, and crime. Yeah, it's a really incredible, almost unbelievable intersection. <laughs> I uh, still find it a little difficult <laughs> to, to get my, wrap my head around that, uh, you know, it was the uh, that the police chief was so heavily involved in uh, in in crime that he actually, you know, took a cut of the bank robberies and kidnappings. And it's pretty well documented. And was possibly involved in murder as well. Yes. Yeah. That's you know that when you get there, you're getting to uh, to you know some evidence, but. You know, there's also leeway there, but when you get into his taking a cut of the, uh, the bank robberies and kidnappings, there's no doubt about that. The F- FBI has that nailed, uh, pretty much nailed. So let's start with this guy, Big Tom Brown. Yeah. Can you tell us about his background a little bit, what we know about him, his rise through the St. Paul Police Department? Yeah, well, I, Tom Brown was from a West Virginia family, and uh, this is sheerly my speculation. But I think I think he, if he he's from a coal mining family, but that guy was way too big to work in the mines. He was six foot five or maybe six foot six, and weighed uh, in the mid two hundreds. And uh, when you see pictures of him, you see what a big man he is uh, next to the other people on the police on the police department. So he ended up coming to St. Paul for some reason, I'm not quite sure, but he w- became a streetcar conductor after the turn of the century. And then he then he went on to the police department. And when he when he became a St. Paul cop, he very quickly shifted over to the vice squad. And uh, there's even in the 1920s, there's evidence that he was called up before the chief and the various boards and question about his uh, uh, easygoing attitude toward uh, enforcing the law. <laughs> it was really the 1920s when he seems to have found his footing, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, after 1919, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the, whole, I, the, the whole point of having drinks available was served by uh, was enabled by gangsters. And so whatever saloon culture, whatever uh, corruption was involved in saloon culture basically went underground and became a lot bigger. There's a lot more opportunity for a police officer who wanted to make more money. And he pops up in the papers at various times under a cloud of suspicion, usually, but he still ends up becoming chief of police. <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> there are a lot of machinations going on in that department and the and if you look at the history of that department in the 20s and 30s there were other police chiefs who were uh suspected of involvement in um various uh various schemes up to and including a robbery of the meatpacking payrolls in the 19 late 1920s so what happened was it was sort of a revolving door. It was almost as if there were a, a secret agreement somewhere where you would become chief and then you would you would fill your pockets and then you would step aside and there was another chief. There were quite a number of chiefs 
in St. Paul between, let's say, 1925 and 1935. I don't have the exact number, but would probably be, you know, probably eight chiefs in 10 years. So Brown just was one of the one of the many who cycled through at first. And he would become the head of something called the Purity Squad, right? The purity, the purity squad, right? The vice, what anybody else would call the vice squad. They yeah, had the purity squad, which was in charge of uh, enforcing prohibition law. So, just as a, a quick refresher, would you mind explaining the O'Connor system, the layover system, what it was, how it benefited criminals, and how it fell apart in the late twenties? Well, you're right to bring. This is a good point to to bring up just now because Tom Brown didn't invent the corruption of St. Paul. It was the O'Connor system had been in place uh, for decades before Tom Brown got to it in the, in the twenties, probably two decades. And the O'Connor brothers, uh, John and Richard had basically run the city in a Tammany hall style uh, system. And their idea was that if you basically, if you invited criminals to town, that you would uh, you would profit by their spending, but you would keep them. You would make them vow not to commit any crimes inside the city limits. So basically, if you look at the history of Minnesota bank robberies, almost all of them take place in places like Redwood City, you know, because the gangsters weren't robbing St. Paul banks. They were living in St. Paul, spending their money in St. Paul. Under the O'Connor system, that was fine. As long as Chief O'Connor didn't have to, you know, uh, respond to any bank robberies, he was okay with it. So commit your crimes outside of St. Paul and spend your money here. That was a almost an economic system, really. <laughs> when did the system start to crumble and, and why? I think the system the system started to crumble because... At the uh, when the O'Connor brothers basically sort of aged out or retired out of the system, and and the fellas who took it over, um, I think it was um, one of the chiefs was named Frank Sumner, who was a sort of a lifelong friend of Tom Brown. The chiefs who took it over stepped up the intensity of it. But they disregarded O'Connor's system. This would have been the mid-late 20s. They disregarded the O'Connor system that you could not commit crimes in St. Paul. They threw that out the window. And basically, that accounted for uh, robbery of, let's say, the Swift and Company payrolls in the 1920s. That was a violation of the O'Connor system. So O'Connor's uh, heirs in the in the in the police hierarchy, basically threw out his safeguards that kept St. Paul from uh, suffering from their own crime wave. So there are a number of important figures in your story, important figures that all kind of have this incestuous relationship with each other. One is Big Tom Brown. Another is Leon Gleckman, whom you refer to as the shadow mayor in your book. Well, Gleckman, Gleckman ran um, ran the the gambling aspects of the city from uh, the I think it's the third second or third floor of the uh, of the St Paul Hotel where uh, you know many of the other offices would have belonged to dentists or accountants and he had his own office up there and he basically ran, he basically ran the rackets he had uh, the flashiest casino in town but he also would he also would actually invite crime to town by bringing in criminals and saying, you know, this such and such neighborhood needs a speakeasy in a casino. Why don't you run it for me? And so uh, he would basically create his own network, um, sort of like a, it's sort of almost like a franchise of casinos. And, and in that way, he became the power broker uh, up until uh, I would say about 1929. So Kleckman's more of a figure of the 20s than he is of the 30s. And what happened to him was basically the feds, he had an Al Capone problem in that he did not report his income to the IRS. And, uh, and Kleckman was, Kleckman was almost a test case for the feds before they brought down 
Capone for tax evasion, they got Gleckman on a very similar charge. And uh, he, he just started to weaken after that. He spent, you know, he spent a lot of money on lawyers. He went to prison. His brother was uh, prosecuted. I'm not sure what happened to his brother. I don't remember what. But um, basically, the feds put the clamps on him in the late 20s. And Tom Brown has an office in the St. Paul Hotel as well. He did. He had an office right right down the hall from uh, from Gleckman. So he was he was basically Gleckman's enforcer, and they used to pull a con game in, between them two. And uh, Gleckman would say, "Well, I'll, I'll give you an example." Okay, Gleckman would set up a gangster and say, "Here, run a speakeasy over in this neighborhood for me." The guy would open a speakeasy, and the cops would raid it and shut him down. So the this the the sucker would come back to Gleckman and say, I thought you told me I could raid the speakeasy. And Gleckman would say, Go see Tom Brown down the hall. And the guy would go down there and Brown would solicit a bribe and then the speakeasy could run for a while without being raided. So it was sort of a bait and switch idea in which they <laughs> they actually created criminal activity so that they could benefit from it. And and uh, Brown and uh, and Gleckman ran this sucker game in the in the late twenties. Gleckman had a bagman named William Dunn, who had one foot in the St. Paul elite and the other in the St. Paul underworld. Right, exactly. That's exactly what he was, and he was a guy who he was a guy who could be seen on Grand Avenue any night in the various speakeasies and restaurants. And he also uh, knew his way around the uh, the dark alleys of St. Paul. And it, as it and as it turned out, that Dunn was a uh, uh, a key employee in the Ham Brewery as well. And that Ham depended on Dunn to help run that brewery uh, that was actually producing illegal beer illegally. Yeah, I have to ask you about that. It's so interesting. We have the two major brewers in town. The Schmidt Brewery, owned by the Bremer family, and the Hams Brewery, owned by the Ham family. Right, right. Both organizations had relationships with Brown and Kleckman, right? Yes, they did. They had to. Um, there's no way they could run those big beer-making operations without, um, without uh, you know, paying off whoever was in power. And... Um, the Bremer family developed especially close relationships with Tom Brown, you know, and um, the Ham family basically was with Gleckman for a while and then started to shift over when Gleckman became less of a factor than Brown and his cronies were basically protecting both both breweries, a classic protection scheme in which you basically solicit money for not shutting them down. So the crown jewel, if you will, saloon slash speakeasy in downtown St. Paul was the Green Lantern Saloon. Right. A very special place mentioned probably <laughs> hundreds of times in your book. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting place because essentially not you know not today we would call it a dive bar that <laughs> basically served hot dogs and cheap beer, but um um it it. it its fame had spread all over the place. I mean, people many states away knew about the Green Lantern and that if you wanted to go to St. Paul and you wanted to know how to stay, how to get in good with the cops in St. Paul, then you just went to the Green Lantern and they would set you straight. So the Green Lantern was criminal headquarters. And it's, it's good to keep in mind that St. Paul was famous throughout gangsterdom in the Midwest as a place you could go if the cops were after you. Let's say you committed a crime in Kansas City. Well, you if you could get to St. Paul and pay off the St. Paul police, they would just ignore an extradition order from Kansas. And how would you arrange that? Well, you would step into the Green Lantern and, you know, say, where's Harry? Where's Harry Sawyer? And things could be arranged for a certain amount of money. And Harry Sawyer was one of the main fixers in St. Paul in mm-hmm. cahoots with Gleckman and Brown. Yes. Who was Harry Sawyer? 
Well, Harry Sawyer was a direct heir of Leon Gleckman, and of course, when Gleckman was moved off the scene, Harry was the Harry was the guy who uh, the heir apparent, and he he stepped up. Harry was uh, the son of an Orthodox Jewish family in uh, Nebraska, and uh, he was the he was the one son in the family who who came to no good. Everyone else was you know be, was a straight arrow business man kind of person, but Harry uh, was in trouble even when he was a kid for all sorts of auto theft and uh, burglary and things like that. And he ended up in, he ended up in St. Paul and as an apprentice to the 1920s figure, Dan, Dapper Dan Hogan. And Harry was a runner for Dapper Dan, who basically was a, a saloon racketeer. And uh, so eventually Dapper Dan met his demise with a car bomb. This may have been one of the first car bombs used in the U.S. And he, he was killed with a car bomb. And uh, and not that much later, Leon Gleckman disappeared into the federal pen. And so it was, it was all Harry's game. And there was a murder that happened in the Green Lantern Saloon, right? Frank Ventress. Right, Frank Ventress, right. And... Um, and this was a this was a murder that um, that uh, got Harry and the police in, in a great deal of trouble because um, nobody quite knows exactly why this murder took place, but the fact that it took place in the Green Lantern and made the newspapers was very upsetting to Harry Sawyer, the proprietor of the Green Lantern, because he was trying to keep everything completely beneath the radar. So gangsters misbehaving in the Green Lantern was almost unheard of, even though it was the gangster headquarters. And uh, so that uh, that um, the murder of Frank Ventress was basically smothered in the court system because the cases could be steered in the St. Paul court system. And I'm not I'm not saying in any way that the entire court system was corrupt, but there were judges who were friendly to the gangsters and the cops. And if you could steer your case to the right judge, you would be in good shape. And that's what happened to the Frank Ventress case. They pinned it on some fellow who couldn't possibly have done it. It blew up in court. And uh, in the meantime, uh, it caused a great deal of consternation in, in gangland because nobody was supposed to, this Green Lantern was not supposed to appear in headlines at all. That case was mentioned in a recent story in the Pioneer Press, along with your book. A pretty interesting article about the Green Lantern Saloon and the recent photographs that surfaced. Right, right. Uh, the, Nick, uh, the reporter there, called me about those photos, but uh, somehow, I don't know, we never... <laughs> he wanted me to sort of look at him to look at the photos to see if I could authenticate them. And really, I... Yeah, I I can't. I mean, I I I take his word for it that uh, that they that they wherever he dug them up, because he has sources in the police historical society. So, were those photographs of the Green Lantern Saloon how you imagined them to be? No, uh, no, because what I really I I I found it hard to imagine a place that. You know, people would go to wearing diamonds and pearls and would have, you know, slot machines in the back room and also be uh, just a complete dive bar in the other room. You know, they they did have two rooms. It was like one room for the elite and the other for the, you know, the guys who came in off the street and weren't weren't trusted. So it was hard to really it was hard for me to imagine what a, a, a tavern divided into such class systems, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sort of like on an airplane, you know, you have your first class with the nice seats and people serving you and then you have the cattle car in the back. Yeah, it was a total dump. <laughs> mhm. Yeah. And and uh, knowing Harry uh, what I do about Harry Sawyer, I'm not surprised because Harry really didn't have a lot of class. In a lot of ways, it would be very. And Jack Pfeiffer, the, his his sort of a rival in the nightclub business, Jack had a lot of class, but Harry Harry was a blue collar guy. So, so I do want to ask you about Gleckman again, specifically this wild story about his kidnapping. Oh yeah, 
Could you tell us about that? Well, the the Gleckman kidnapping was a staged event that was, uh, I believe, I mean, I can't really, I can't really prove it, but I believe the event was staged, uh, was staged by uh, Tom Brown. And the idea of having Gleckman kidnapped was to sort of save him from his own enemies. And, and so Brown probably engineered this. And then Jack Piper was put forward as the guy who, who found them, who saved them, who went out and, and, uh, rescued, uh, Gleckman from his, uh, from his captivity in a fishing cabin. When Gleckman came back to St. Paul, he pr- tried to pretend that nothing had happened at all and said he was on a fishing trip. So the whole thing is sort of, you know, the whole thing is, um, is in a lot of ways murky, but extremely suspicious. Why was Gleckman kidnapped and why were the three low life guys who supposedly kidnapped him? They were railroaded. They were all Italian guys too, right? They were all Italian guys from the levee, exactly. And they were sort of dispensable dopes, I guess, you know, you would say. Or uh, Stalin's phrase would be willing idiots, you know. And they um, they were, it was pinned on them. The kidnapping was pinned on them. And they probably had something to do with it. But I don't think they knew exactly what they were doing and why. And, uh, and the whole thing was orchestrated, but it's, you know, a lot of clarity comes to this era from what the FBI found out. And in this case, the Gleckman kidnapping, the FBI never really got involved. And so whatever documents there were, uh, you know, have prob- pretty much disappeared. Remember, the St. Paul police destroyed an awful lot of their own history. It's such a strange story. For the reasons you just stated, it appeared to be completely staged, and yet Gleckman <laughs> pretended <laughs> it, it it didn't happen for a while. Perhaps he was embarrassed about it. Yeah, for a bit, but it ultimately led to the torture and murder of one of the men involved. Yeah, and th- it is interesting that it is interesting the number of bodies that did show up in uh, in St. Paul in the 30s, um, you know, left on the road, people who were involved in the, with uh, the gangsters or the police department. And, and this was just another example of an unsolved murder that may have been committed by St. Paul cops or may just have been the work of gangsters. It's hard to really know. You know, if you, if you look at the... If you look at the Bremer kidnapping, you'll see it just as an example. I'm I'm going to guess that there's something like a minimum of 300,000 pages of documents on the Bremer kidnapping alone, and that's because uh, F, that's because FDR got interested in this kidnapping. The Bremers were political supporters in a very big way. So, given that level of interest, the FBI stepped in there uh, with a, a great deal of uh, um, a great deal of emphasis and put a lot of energy into it. And and they reported the living hell out of that kidnapping. But when you get something like Lechman, which didn't come under FBI scrutiny, and then uh, whatever documents I found were basically, uh, I went digging around in the um, the county court system and found the actual cases on microfiche. Uh, and read through the uh, and read through the uh, the testimony, um, but that's it. If you were looking for a police report, you weren't. You will never find any of that. So you're basically thrown back on the court system, which was not 100% trustworthy, and the newspapers, which I think the newspapers of the day did the best they could, but they weren't given very good information. I have to ask you about this, Frank Laprie. He's this sleazy owner of of this seedy St. Paul hotel and suddenly he's found murdered and again was tortured. Yeah. What are your theories on that? Uh, how do you think he was involved? Why do you think he met his end especially in that fashion? Well, I think I think that 
I think that Frank Laprie was a really good example of what we were talking about a few minutes ago. A man who had been encouraged to go into the prostitution uh, saloon uh, gambling business, in other words, the vice business in downtown St. Paul. He really wasn't, he wasn't a natural St. Paul gangster. He was encouraged to go into it by the Gleckman Brown system. And so he ran a, uh, he ran a, uh, a sleazy operation doing anything illegal that could be done in, in terms of vice. And Laprie decided at some point that he didn't want to pay his franchise fee. Let's put it that way. He didn't, he wanted to, he realized that he was being, that he was being stiffed, that he was being ripped, um, and that he basically just becoming a, a sort of a underpaid employee of the, uh, of the gangster system. So he wanted out of it. And at some point he, basically was found on the side of the road. And this is one of the the, the murders that some people uh, at the time were certain were committed by St. Paul police and retaliation for his not wanting to play the game anymore and to show the other uh the other owners of uh Bravos and um and speakeasies what happened to a person who didn't want to play. And you suggest in your book that the police might have extracted an account from Laprie as to the identities of the members of the kidnapping party, right? Right. I, I, I saw, I, yes. Did he give up those names or was he the person who, in other words, an alternate theory is that Laprie was the guy who found these three Italian fellows who pulled off the Gleckman kidnapping. So he was the so-called cutout man. He was the guy who could put the finger on anybody since he had recruited these three guys from the levy to do the kidnapping. And since he was a cutout man, um, and since he could cause a lot of trouble for the system, uh, he, that, that put him in extra danger. So it does, it does seem that whoever did arrange the, uh, the Gleckman kidnapping had Laprie as an intermediary. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Everybody, shush. William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies well of course you dig her up and you live with her Aww. the show examines weird things there are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses oh i miss those days things used to be so much simpler cat and jethro then there's the urine wheel which sounds like a really bad game show they've done weird things Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. So I do want to shift over to the Barker Carpus gang. It's such a fascinating transition when Prohibition ends, you got all these bootlegging enterprises in St. Paul, and all of a sudden, the money dries up, and these guys all have to start looking for new sources of income. And that goes for Tom Brown, too. Yeah. He, he was taking these cuts from these liquor businesses, and, and when it disappears, he has to adapt. Right. And then comes the Great Depression, and the new era of the Midwest bank robbing gang. And these are the new cats in town. And to his criminal credit, he connects and profits with and from these new guys. 
Yeah, I think Brown was very quick to pick up on the idea that the uh, the Barker Carpus gang were uh, not just a bunch of local thugs who might be able to bungle a, a bank robbery. I mean that they were a really sharp outfit, and you know a lot of that was attributable to Alvin Carpus, who was a very intelligent and shrewd man. And um, so I think uh, Brown caught on to the Barker Carpus gang very early. And as you said, with the, you know, with the, as beer began to roll in and, and beer became legal first before any other form of alcohol. But as the taverns began to open and close as a source of income to the police, what was next? Well, these bank robbery gangs could keep the system going. And so Barker and Carpus um, came through, came up to uh, St. Paul on the run from having murdered a sheriff in West Plains, Missouri. And this is how far the uh, the reputation of the Green Lantern spread. That uh, a criminal in Missouri said, "Oh yeah, well you, if the cops were after you, here's where you want to go: the Green Lantern in St. Paul. They'll never get you if you go there." So they did. Barker and Carpus lit out for St. Paul, rented a house on Robert Street, and um, began to look for work in town. Would you mind giving quick bios of each member of the Barker Carpus gang? Sure, sure. The uh, the the Barker the Barker brother, Ma Barker, um, was the sort of a single mother of four um, four boys, all of whom eventually died of gunshot wounds. And so, I mean, there was just there was just a real troubled family. When they lived in the Ozarks, Fred Barker ended up in prison for suspicion of robbery and and homicide. And while he was in prison, he met this guy Alvin Carpus, who had been raised in Chicago, who uh, drifted over to Kansas City, and he was arrested as a burglar and uh, and bank robber. So those, these two guys met in prison and they just clicked and they got out of prison at about the same time and they went to live with Ma Barker in the Ozarks. When they, they pulled off a sort of a second rate burglary of a clothing store in West Plains, Missouri. And the next day, the sheriff uh, spotted their car in a garage and he became suspicious. He walked over to question them and uh, they shot the sheriff dead right, right on the spot. And then they hightailed it out of the, the Ozarks for St. Paul. So at that point, uh, it was Fred Barker, Alvin Carpus, and the mother. And the, the other Barker brother who became a member of the gang, Doc Barker, was still in prison. But uh, So it was those two guys, Freddie Barker and Alvin Carpus, and they were like a match made in hell, really. I mean, uh, the Al, uh, Alvin Carpus was the brains, and... And Freddie Barker was the psycho killer who would just, I mean, he'd just pull the trigger on anyone. He didn't care. And uh, he has special animus for police. So those two met. They realized that they were sort of, uh, you know, Jack Spratt and his wife, you know, and uh, and they became partners. And when they got to St. Paul, it became a, a sort of a perfect setup for them because through Jack Piper and Harry Sawyer, they um, – they were introduced to Tom Brown and the whole system. And Brown told them how it went. You go out into the sticks and rob a bank. You come back here and we'll protect you here if you can get back here. And we'll take 10% of your cut. You make a, a marvelous point in your book. And it really struck me. During this era of the Depression, there had been hundreds and hundreds of two-bit hoodlums roaming around the Midwest that never amounted to anything, right? Oh, yeah. And the Barker Carpus gang was like that at the beginning. Right. They were holding up Penny Annie stores. Yes, exactly. Etc. But once they made the connections in St. Paul, everything really blossomed. Yeah, that's right. That's when they graduated to the major leagues, uh, the first couple of crimes they pulled off after they got to St. Paul were basically uh, pulling into some small town in the night and breaking into all the stores and taking clothing. I mean, that's the level they were at. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, they anyway, they uh, you know, it wasn't too long before they realized that, 
if they genuinely had police protection, they could really step up their game. And so they began to began to accumulate uh, a bigger gang. Generally, there was an argument among the gangsters, but basically it took five or six guys to rob a bank. You know, some people wanted the six man, some didn't. But uh, every man had, it was like a baseball team. Every guy had his, his position and his expectation, you know. So once they, once the Barker Carpus gang got to five or six guys, then they started going out into the small towns in, basically in Minnesota, but, uh, some in Wisconsin and be, just began to make these fantastic calls from banks, which today would be there. Some of their robberies were, $50,000, I use a factor of about 20. So you had in today's, in today's cash, you would have million dollar bank robberies. And when, you know, when do you ever hear of a million dollar bank robbery anymore? It just doesn't happen. But they did it. They pulled it off. And this coincided with the crumbling of the O'Connor system. Right, right. And the, the O'Connor system was basically dead because Tom Brown and his, his system just busted away the prohibition on on committing crimes in St. Paul. They did commit crimes in St. Paul, but they still focused focused on uh, small town banks. And one of the reasons for small town banks was because they can get away. If you if you drove out to uh, if you drove out to let's say Redwood Falls or Mankato, you could get away because the police didn't have radios yet. So <laughs> all you had, and they didn't certainly didn't have aircraft. So all you had to do was have a fast car. If you could get away from the sheriff immediately after a bank robbery, they and you were in the out in the cornfield, they had no hope of figuring out where you were. These guys could f- afford faster cars than the police could. Oh yeah, the police had the the cops had your basic Ford um, four bangers, you know, uh, four cylinders, and these guys could have any you know any car they wanted. And they actually didn't have to pay for most of them anyway. <laughs> they stole them. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, the you know the the I I read somewhere a treatise from Carpus, maybe written when he was in jail, who said you know the problem with robbing an urban bank is all sorts of things. You know, a fire could block the street. You could run into a train crossing and get trapped. You know, um, but if you were out in the sticks and with a cornfield and four directions to go you could lose the cops and you know they they never catch you so and they would change cars too you know they would they would stash a car a few miles away so if they got away in a in a brown buick they'd they'd hop into a green chevy a few miles away and complete their getaway well that was the the brilliance of of the pairing of elvin carpus and fred barker right right carpus was the genius mastermind meticulous planner and Barker, the trigger man. Yeah, he was an impulse guy. Uh, and I think, um, I think Carpus was not vicious enough or even brave enough to pull off a bank robbery by himself. I think he needed Freddie, Freddie Barker was, I don't know if you've ever met a fearless guy in your life, but I have met a couple and it's, it is strange. They are strange people that they just don't seem to have that level of intimidation. And Freddie Barker was one of those. And uh, that's why he didn't last very long, but and he ended up being uh, blasted apart by the FBI. Have you seen the interviews done with Carpus in the 70s after leaving prison? I have, yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh, so fascinating. Yeah. There's yeah. something really odd about him. Yeah. He's a strangely, strangely civilized man in his own way, you know, and uh, he's very, obviously a psychopath, but he's also, I don't know, there's also something, uh, civilized, I guess, is the best word I can come up with. He seems like a guy that you could have a beer with, with no problem, you know. <laughs> Well, just going back to the title of your book, uh, Big Tom Brown and the Barker Carpus Gang. Right. They are your primary focuses. They seem to rise in status at the same time, benefiting from each other. But you were able to find no evidence, right, that they actually ever crossed paths. They always used go-betweens. I believe that's true. If they met, 
um, there, there's no way to prove it. Um, I, mostly I think the go-betweens were Harry Sawyer and Jack Pfeiffer. So, um, it, it, it's hard to, it's hard to actually say, but you would think that, you would think that Brown and his, his, his lieutenants would really not want to be seen in, in the company of those, uh, those fellas. And I think that Brown and his, his lieutenants were only rarely seen at the Green Lantern as well. Harry, Harry used to troop over to the police station, which is right around the corner. It's where the, uh, well, it's police station is still there. It's just changed to a condo now, but, uh, Harry used to go to the police station rather than the cops come to him, as I understand it. You would think in that autobiography of, of Elvin Karpis's, he's such a braggart, such a narcissist. Yeah. You'd think that if he was talking directly with the chief of police in St. Paul, he would have mentioned it. I think I book. think that's a safe assumption, yeah. So I'd, I'd love it if you could run down the Barker Carpus gang's time in St. Paul. We obviously don't have a lot of time here to get into every detail of every robbery, kidnapping, murder. But how in general did their crimes in the city escalate over time? Well, the, the big ex, the big escalation was um, there. I mean, their their bank robberies were pretty much settled down to be a, a a standard thing. They would just select a town. They would send um, they would send a so called jug marker out, and that's a really interesting uh, thing to ponder. Is that they just didn't walk into these banks and and rob them. I mean, they studied these things. They sent guys out there. Guys would open accounts. Guys would talk to the barber across the street. I mean, they really studied these things. And so that M.O. never really changed. The Barker Carpus gang was, you know, as as professional an outfit as could be. And they were going along robbing banks okay until they decided where the big change was getting involved in the kidnappings. And it was the kidnappings. It was like if they had just rob banks they they might have gone on for quite a while but the kidnappings really tripped them up because they were no longer dealing with the St. Paul police as the top investigative agency and once the feds came in these were people that could not be bribed or put off so it was their step up from the bank robberies they had down pat but it was their step up in 1933 uh, June, summer of 1933, they had been in town for two years. They'd been robbed, I don't know, maybe eight banks in two years and gotten millions of dollars out of this. And uh, they decided that they wanted to step up and do the ham kidnapping. And the number one reason, if you, I don't know if you ran into this uh, with Carpus, but the number one reason Carpus gave was they were just, they were just kind of nervous about robbing these banks. Because uh, the townspeople were beginning to shoot back. You know, when they'd robbed X number of banks, the people in these small towns began to get wise to them and say, okay, well, we're going to stockpile rifles. And they sometimes got into shooting matches. They didn't want this at all. They just wanted the money. They didn't want to shoot it out with Farmer Joe. <laughs> so so they decided that it would be safer if to... Um, to get into kidnapping and Tom Brown had a real motive to engineer the ham kidnapping. And the motive was to assert control of uh, the ham brewery. And by control, I mean, basically um, he, he, he got a, a slice of the, of the profit. Jack Pfeiffer. Yeah. Uh, where did he headquarter? Could, could you tell us a little bit more about him? Sure. Uh, Jack Jack Pfeiffer was the was the son of a turkey farmer from uh, outstate Minnesota, and um, he uh, he came into town and um, he basically started running various upscale nightclubs, and he specialized in these upscale nightclubs. The one that everybody goes to now on the gangster tour, the Tavern. Um, you know, uh, 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 they're uh, in the cliffs under St. Paul there. 
anyway, Pfeiffer was uh, somewhat involved in running nightclubs, including the including the one in the cavern, and uh, I think it was called the Crystal Cavern at one point. And he, but he eventually um, got his own place across the river uh, in Highland Park there, which uh, a mansion that sort of overlooks the airport, the river, and the airport these days, called the Hollyhock. And the Hollyhocks became the very glamorous place that actually drew mostly a Minneapolis crowd and quite a bunch of uh, the legal crowd would drink there. It was uh, Jack was married to a, a beauty queen, and he himself dressed uh, very fashionably. The place served steak and frog legs. It was absolutely the opposite of the Green Lantern <laughs> in terms of in terms of its elegance, and upstairs was a casino that made all the money. But the real money that Piper made was from bootlegging, from run, from running the. Uh, oh, that's right. I also remember Jack Piper also had uh, some downtown Minneapolis. Uh, uh, he ran uh, taverns in the hotels or speakeasies in the hotels down there. So he had a long career, and this uh, owning the Hollyhocks was the capstone of this career. And it became the place to be seen for elegant people and uh, elegant people in St. Paul who wanted to consort with gangsters because it's kind of glamorous. So Pfeiffer, Pfeiffer, in in, in essence, uh, became uh, became a person who began to knock heads with the ham brewery over control of. The speakeasies over control of the beer and over the way the money would split up. Interesting. So Pfeiffer was knee deep in the planning of these kidnappings. Right. Right. Exactly. He had some factor in the in the Gleckman kidnapping and definitely in the Ham kidnapping. Yeah. And in the Ham kidnapping, Tom Brown has an inside man. Right. William Dunn. And William Dunn, exactly. Exactly. What, what role did he play in in all of this? Well, it seems it seems that Dunn was the Dunn was the sort of the, the the shepherd of this kidnapping. He was the person who would make sure that, for one thing, William Ham wasn't hurt. Uh, that wasn't the goal. Um, the goal was to intimidate him. And the second thing is he would make sure that the cops and the gangsters knew what each one were doing so there were no crossed wires because the police enabled this kidnapping and Dunn was the intermediary. It's also interesting that he was the plant, uh, something like the plant manager for the ham brewery. So the question is, was he sort of a plant all along in the ham brewery? Was he a representative of gangland in the, in the ham brewery who, uh, William Ham Jr. had to uh, had to hire. That's a question. But in in any case, he he played he played a huge role in facilitating this kidnapping and making sure that everything everybody played the role and everything came out okay, including Ham's safe delivery. So they did get the money. It was successful. Right, a hundred thousand dollars. Right, yeah, they got it. Yeah. And it so energized them that they decided to go after Edward Bremer a few months later. Six months later, right, in January 34. Um, So Ham was like June 33 and Bremer was uh, 1934. Now, the the thinking inside the Barker-Carpus gang was that Carpus didn't want to do it. Uh, He was afraid of the FBI. Um, the tremendous amount, it's a very complex story, but a tremendous amount of, um, buffoonery went into the prosecution of the, of the ham kidnappers and the wrong person was targeted and the whole trial blew up and everything went away. And the federal government gave up after blowing its case, um, prosecuting the wrong guy, a Chicago gangster named Roger Tuhi. And they were manipulated, feds were manipulated into, uh, into, uh, prosecuting that guy. And, uh, anyway, um, this, a close call with the FBI was enough for Carpus. He didn't want to do it, but he became talked into it by, uh, by Fred Barker and, uh, some of the other, of the other kidnappers. 
And uh, so he decided that he was going to do one more and then he was going to go live in New Zealand or something. He's just going to get out of town. And they decided to double the ransom to 200 grand and set their sights on Ed Bremer. And the Bremer family had been knee-deep in business with Gleckman, right? And Brown. That They had accounts. They both had accounts with, with the Bremer Bank. Yeah. It, it seems that... It seems that I mean the Bremer the Bremer family um, uh, uh, were, was was split between the two brothers um, Otto and Adolf and uh, Otto uh, the Bremer Bank today has come from is a has come from Otto's outfit Adolf was the brewer basically and uh, but Adolf also had a minor interest in banking and uh, I think it was called Commerce State Bank. But this bank, unlike Otto's bank, was more legit. But Adolf's bank was essentially, we're open to laundering the money that comes in from all these bank robberies and all this criminal activity. So it's basically, criminals need bankers too, right? I mean, <laughs> so that was the Bremer Bank was, had many dark accounts. And the Bremer Brewing Company, you mentioned in your book, owned a piece of the Green Lantern Saloon. They did. Um, <laughs> and, and, and the Green Lantern also, it was a double deal, though, because the Green Lantern also was their distributor. I mean, somebody had to run those beer barrels at night through the, through the streets of St. Paul without getting pulled over. And so Harry's boys did it. And uh, if you want to make a delivery down to, uh, you know, um, where, uh, down to whatever town, down to Shakopee, some tavern down there, then you had to have a protected truck do it, you know. So, so Harry, Harry was a distributor, and the and the Bremers uh, also owned part of the Green Lantern. They were they were sort of in bed together. So I guess the the question becomes: the Hams and the Bremers had these close knit relationships with Gleckman, Sawyer, etc. in the twenties during Prohibition. Right. Why then would Gleckman, Pfeiffer, Brown pick members of these families as their abductees? Why didn't they go after someone else, like from the Dayton family or the Donaldson family? <laughs> that that question is ex- goes exactly to the heart of the matter. And here, it took me a while to realize what was up there. Okay, when beer brewing was illegal, um, William Ham and Adolf Bremer had no choice really but to pay off the cops if they wanted to ship their beer. But once beer became legal, both those guys basically said, what do we need you for to the gangsters? Because they didn't need them anymore. They didn't need protection because they weren't doing anything illegal. So they both wanted to join you know, the legit world and shrug off the uh, the guys who had been their uh, quote-unquote friends and protectors for 12 years. And the message being sent to those guys was not so, to the brewers was, not so fast. Uh, you're not going to get away with that. So why why pick on Ham and Bremer? Because they they wanted to intimidate both men and show them that they weren't going to break free of their obligations to the gang just because beer was legal. Woo! Well, we've just touched the surface of the book, and we're running out of time here. So let me ask you this. How did things end for these guys? How did they start to fall apart? Well, basically, basically the things really fell apart. It's an easy key, sort of. It was all about the Bremer kidnapping. The fact that the Bremers were uh, personal friends and contributors to FDR meant that Roosevelt put a lot of pressure on J. Edgar Hoover to solve the Bremer kidnapping. And once the Bremer kidnapping broke, um, they the FBI began to pull in all the strands. And once the strands started to come in, all those connections were made. In 1934, 1935, most Law enforcement people had no idea who these uh, 
uh, Alvin Karpis and Fred Barker were. All they knew, there were gangs running around the Midwest. They didn't know who they were. They didn't know who had done the kidnappings. And, um, and so was the, the investigation, the intense investigation and focus by the FBI, uh, just broke open the whole shell and all the egg leaked out there. How were they able to, to bring the case forward? Was there a, a witness, a link of? There, well, in, in two ways, you know, two, there, one famous incident in coming back from the, from the Bremer, uh, kidnapping, um, they had, they, they, these guys used to carry extra fuel in their cars because they didn't want to stop at gas stations because for fear they'd be identified or, you know, the cops would follow them up and find out that they had stopped for gas. So they used to carry extra fuel. So on the way back from the Bremer kidnapping, uh, uh, Doc Barker, uh, was refueling, uh, uh, one of the cars and he spilled, it was winter. He spilled gasoline on his glove. He threw one of the gloves away and left a fingerprint on the gas can. And then he discarded the gas can. The FBI <laughs> found that gas can and began to make the case of, uh, of Fred Fred Barker and the Barker gang having pulled this off. The second thing that happened besides the, the trial based on pure physical evidence was the FBI sort of by accident ran into this woman named Beth Green. And this is a woman who appears both in Paul McAbee's book and in mine as a very important person because she was, once they figured out that she, once they figured out that she had all this information, they began to sweat her for it and she gave it all to them. She had, she was uh, a former hostess at the Green Lantern and she knew all the players and she knew who had done what. And the FBI got all this information out of her and started to use this. And that's how they tracked down the Barker gang and that's how they tracked down the Dillinger gang as well. So, you know, Better investigative techniques by the FBI, a couple lucky breaks, and then running into this woman, Beth Green, who uh, just spilled the whole, all the beans. How did things end for Jack Pfeiffer and Harry Sawyer? They didn't fare very well in all of this, did they? No, um, Harry Sawyer um, Harry Sawyer ended up in Alcatraz, um, be, uh, having been uh, convicted in the... Um, I think it was a Bremer kidnapping that he was convicted in. Um, anyway, he did end up in uh, Alcatraz uh, with um, with uh, Alvin Carpus, and uh, he uh, eventually uh, was released from Alcatraz. I think maybe in the in the very early fifties, with uh, as he was dying of cancer. So he spent the basically the rest of his life in Alcatraz. And uh, Jack Pfeiffer was uh, convicted of kidnapping William Ham in a in federal court, and uh, he chew he had a piece of uh, poison chewing gum, and once the uh, once the verdict was read, he chewed that gum, and they took him back to his jail cell, and he died back there. He never served any time at all, and he never got out of the uh, St. Paul jail. And Freddie and Ma were mowed down in Florida by federal agents. Freddie and Ma were mowed down in Florida by federal agents, exactly. And, uh, and, uh, Doc, um, Doc ended up in Alcatraz where he was eventually killed during, uh, an escape attempt. And Carpus, uh, went, was the longest prisoner, longest held prisoner in, in Alcatraz history. And he got out and, uh, eventually made himself some sort of life in, uh, in Spain, actually. They deported him to Canada since he was born in Canada, and uh, he uh, he ended up uh, in Spain. Well, this has been excellent. So for people who want to learn more about you and your book, it's available pretty much everywhere in Minnesota, and people can get it online, of course, as well. Yeah, yeah, our Minnesota Historical Society, too, yeah. Yes, definitely. The main gift shop in downtown St. Paul, I'm there occasionally and see your book on the shelf alongside mine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and are you working on anything new? I am. I am working on. I am working on my own thing here, but um, it really has nothing to do with the gangster era because after um, 
after I wrote Secret Partners, I wrote another four books of fiction about the 30s. And I, I, the reason I did that was that I learned so many things that I did not fit into the book Secret Partners. I mean, <laughs> you know, there's so many, you know, you have to stay on topic when you write a book. And I learned all so- sorts of wild and interesting things that weren't on topic. So I felt I had to find some outlet for them. And I wrote some uh, books of fiction that were basically published, you know, Amazon published, independent published, self-published, whatever they're called these days. So, uh, and once I'd done that, you know, I, then I'd been in the sort of, uh, uh, gangster writing business for about 10 years. And I felt like, uh, it was time for me to find something else. Sure. Sure. Well, well, thanks again for your time. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you for the call, Eric. And the next time I come up to the twins, I'm going to, uh, email you and maybe we can get a cup of Joe together. eh? That would be amazing. Looking forward to it. I've been speaking again to Tim Mahoney, the author of Secret Partners, Big Tom Brown, and the Barker Carpus Gang. This has been another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious. See you next time. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.